You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.einrand.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. We discuss the complex issues and events shaping our world from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. My name is Ilan Jerno, and welcome. Uh, if you are interested in learning more about our journal, you can find us online. Our address is newideal.einrand.org. And if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook or another platform other than Zoom, and you want to join and have your questions answered, you can uh, connect with us on Zoom by going to zoom.us slash join. And the meeting ID is 812-506-718. So today's topic is the legal challenges to the lockdown. And uh, by one reckoning, I, I found there are hundreds of legal cases going through state and federal courts related to the pandemic. And out of those, there are scores and scores of them that are challenging the legality of the lockdowns or stay-at-home orders in various states. Uh, there have already been several court decisions in some states that overturn the quarters and some that haven't. And I think there's a lot of interesting uh, issues here from the perspective of what does it look like to approach this issue from a perspective that really values individual rights and the rule of law. So to explore these issues, I'm joined today by uh, two guests, uh, Steve Simpson, a senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, who was also a former legal uh, studies director here at the Iron Institute some years ago, and another and a colleague of Steve's at Pacific Legal, Anastasia Bowden, who, Bowden, who is a senior attorney there. She works on economic liberty and challenges anti-competitive licensing laws and laws that restrict freedom of speech. Steve, Anastasia, welcome. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start, I know you guys have a big, uh, a big win you want to share, and I think it's really exciting. So I want to get to that in just a minute. That's based in California. But just to give us some wider context, um, let's talk about what I think is the landmark decision so far, which is the Wisconsin uh, decision. So what, what was the basis for, so it, Wisconsin had a statewide lockdown and that was overturned. So what was the, what was the legality of that? What was at issue and what was the court's ruling and how do you view it? Sure. Um, the basic, so the, the challenge in Wisconsin was a challenge by members of the Wisconsin legislature to, uh, it wasn't actually the governor's um, shutdown order, it was the Department of Health shutdown order. And the way, a lot of states, the way they operate, and you can think about this from the standpoint of how the federal government often operates, which is the president or the executive, the governor in the, in the case of a state, will issue various policies and they'll be implemented by administrative agencies. And that is what happened in Wisconsin and is true in a number of states across the country. Um, the, uh, so the, the head of the Department of Health in Wisconsin was the person who issued the, the shutdown or lockdown orders. And she actually issued a number of them like a lot of governors have and, and has happened in, in many of the states. And um, 
a number of members of the legislature who disagreed with that, Republican legislature, Democratic uh, governor, um, not surprisingly, uh, you know, they, they brought this challenge. And their argument really boils down to a couple points. It's not what, uh, what I think, you know, people who are um, fans of individual rights, objectivist libertarians would typically think of as the kind of challenge or constitutional challenge that we might see. That is, uh, oftentimes you'll see people invoke a particular right under the Constitution, federal or state, like economic liberty or just general liberty, free speech, et cetera, and they'll, they'll challenge the orders or, or any government action on that grounds. This was more, this is what we would call a separation of powers challenge. So um, the legislature argued, in essence, that the, the Department of Health just lacked the authority either under her, the statutes that the Department of Health um, that the legislature promulgated to be um, used in an emergency or to deal with disease and pandemics or broader constitutional principles, um, in, in particular, uh, a principle that's called the non-delegation doctrine. And essentially what the non-delegation doctrine says is that the legislature can't delegate broad power to administrative agencies or to the executive, really. The administrative agencies all come under the power of the executive branch. And um, long story short, the Wisconsin Supreme Court agreed with the legislature's challenge and said that the Department of Health vastly exceeded their authority um, to issue these shutdown orders. And it's really an interesting decision. It's actually a great decision worth, um, I think everybody who's interested in the topic um, taking a look at. It's a really a model of what I think modern courts, meaning courts within even the, the context of a government that does way more than it should, an administrative state that's much bigger than it should be, how, govern, how a, a court should operate. And um, to boil it down to its essence, they basically um, drew, they came to three conclusions. Um, the first conclusion is that the, uh, in order to promulgate uh, an, an order like this, the, uh, they have to, even an administrative agency, even an executive agency has to follow certain statutorily prescribed procedures even when it's issuing what we would refer to as an executive rule, which isn't the same thing as a statute that the legislature promulgates. It's more uh, the kind of bureaucratic rules that we get emanating from Washington, D.C. all the time. But even those are subject to some legislative processes. And essentially, it's known as notice and comment rulemaking. They have to make the, the rules. Um, they have to publish them, and they have to have a period of, of getting comment commentary from the public, and then they can, they can enforce these rules. They didn't even go through that process, which is a, is a really severely abbreviated or truncated process that only bears the, you know, a distant kind of relation to the legislative process, but the, the Department of Health didn't even follow that. So the court said, you can't do that. You, you can't just essentially act like, I mean, they didn't say a dictator, but effectively, you can't assume this kind of power. One unelected official can't assume this broad sweeping authority to shut down the entire state. So they said, you have to follow these statutory procedures. They also said, the court said that if we were to allow this, it would constitute an unconstitutional delegation of broad authority by the legislature to the executive branch, to an unelected bureaucrat, because effectively what the legislature would be saying um, would be, go ahead, here's broad power, and you can just implement it any way you want. And the court said, no, no, that's not how a constitutional um, system operates. And then finally, they said, again, these were sort of alternative 
holdings, they all sort of ladder or layer on top of each other. They said, look, this is also a criminal, this, this law or this, this provision carries criminal penalties. And even if we were to allow you to do all the other things that we said you're not allowed to do, you can't impose criminal penalties on people without following these kinds of procedures that only really, if we're gonna have criminal penalties imposed on people, that's the kind of thing that the legislature has to enact and the governor has to um, sign off on. So to, to kind of summarize the point, the founders gave us a system which is uh, marked by, you know, really three principles. One is um, enumerated powers or, or, or um, enumerated and separated powers. So powers divided among three branches of government. Um, those powers are limited. And then we have, you know, protections for rights. This is just, a, this is a classic example of what separation of powers was designed to do. Essentially, not to allow one single um, branch of the government and certainly not one either elected or unelected official to wield all of the power. So um, this is the Wisconsin Supreme Court saying that separation of powers is you know, alive and well and, uh, and an important principle. And for that reason, but it's also a really well-written, really well-reasoned decision. It's a, it's a surprisingly good decision today. I wanna, so you mentioned uh penalties for people who violated this order in Wisconsin and how that was a, uh, one of the stumbling blocks. I want to come back to that. And in particular, I want to, when we turn now to California, this was something that was um, sort of a part of a case you guys were involved with. So California was one of the first states to issue a statewide uh, stay-at-home order. And it's also one of the, the ones slowest to reopen. It's got this stage uh, process now where I think we're in stage two I don't quite, I, I, I read the order. I don't quite understand what stage two and stage three look like. But I want to talk about a case you guys have been involved with. So Anastasia, I think you're, uh, you are close to this. So there was a situation. So, so am I correct? We're, we're at stage two right now. And we're, we're to be determined when stage three is. But you, you were involved in a case about an art gallery in Napa Valley that wanted for just survival reasons to reopen and be aligned with what, sort of this, what was going on. So just fill us in on the case and where it stands. Sure, yeah, we were representing the Corderes who owned the Quint Cordaire Art Gallery in Napa, California. And Napa has been one of the counties that has been most successful in stemming the curb of infections. I think today they have zero hospitalizations, a handful of infections. Um, they've done a really good job of keeping that down. You know, it's re relatively isolated. Um, part of Northern California. And so when the curve started to flatten, the Corderes wanted to reopen their gallery. Uh, they wanted to do it very responsibly. They would only allow in six people at a time to their 3,000 square foot gallery. They would require everyone to wear masks. They would maintain social distancing. You know, there's not a lot of high touch surfaces at an art gallery. In fact, people are encouraged not to touch the art. Um, so they thought that it was a pretty safe and reasonable request. And so they had actually published an open letter in the Napa local paper saying, this is our intention. This is what we want to do. We think that's right. We think that's fair. Um, and we're going to do it. And they were immediately threatened with fines and jail time for doing so if they opened in advance of California's uh, three-step reopening plan. So they shut back down. And this was pretty, you know, this was earlier in the month. Well, 
move into a little later in the month and California says, all right, we're going to start to let businesses open now, particularly stage two businesses. Stage two businesses are all retail businesses. Well, the Cordaire's gallery is stage three. Stage three includes museums, sort of entertainment things and personal services. So museums, uh, uh, movie theaters, um, barbers, that type of thing, and then also art galleries. So they were looking, you know, right and left at every business on their street. Every single business is a retail business that is permitted to open and they are not. And they thought that was very unjust and we thought so too. So we wrote a letter to the County of Napa saying this is entirely arbitrary. If these businesses are able to open, so should the Cordaires. The Cordaires do not present any health and safety risk above and beyond these other uh, businesses. Um, you know, certainly you can regulate to, to protect public health or safety, but this distinction has nothing to do with that and uh, it undermines the rule of law. So the county never responded to our letter. And so we decided that we were going to bring a lawsuit. So we very quickly put together all of the uh, papers to file for an emergency restraining order on the county of Napa and to allow the Cordaires to open. I mean, every day that they're closed, this is a big deal for them. It's, you know, it threatens their ability to survive the closure. Um, and so we were getting ready to file and yesterday I called the county to notify them, to give them notice as a courtesy and as, as is required by local rule. And I called them up and I said, we're gonna sue on this basis. And they said, actually, we are going to consider art galleries now retail businesses and uh, allowed to open under stage two. And so, Magically, the Cordaires are allowed to open and we no longer have a need for a lawsuit. Um, but there's a lot of issues that go on with that about the rule of law, about the vagueness of these laws, um, the ability of the government to sort of uh, quickly change its mind um, with no accountability. And it's good for the Cordaires, but they're obviously very frustrated that they lost many nights of sleep thinking that they were going to be imprisoned for doing the very thing that they're allowed to do now. Um, and that it took you know, the threat of a lawsuit to get here. So that's where we're at. Um, very happy for the Cordaires. It's, it's a good result overall, but I think it, it invites a lot of questions about what's happening in California. I'm interested in how the state defined these categories. So we started off with essential services. They were allowed to stay open throughout, and then there's stage one and stage two. And I mean, I think what would make sense to me is that you would classify businesses according to how risky they might be in terms of like if people are really crowded together or they're not. And so how much of that actually went into the, the categorization? Cause it seems, it, I mean, an art gallery, how's that different from a supermarket where you only allow the same number of people into the same kind of floor space? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think the orders have gotten progressively more arbitrary. At the outset, they allowed all essential businesses to stay open. So that included a lot of things that I think most people would agree are essential infrastructure, um, grocery stores, things of that nature. But they also exempted the entire entertainment industry. The entire entertainment industry was considered essential maybe in California, um, <laughs> because they have a lot of lobbying power. So it's essential to these politicians uh, staying in the office. But uh, it was already, it seemed a little arbitrary. Then with stage two, now they're claiming that this all has to do with health and safety risk. But that just doesn't seem to be right. Because again, like you said, look at the Cordaire's gallery, they seem very safe. Um, 
you would think that they would regulate based on characteristics of the business, just impose generally, generally applicable safety standards like social distancing, mandatory masks, whatever, but things that actually have to do with the business's risk rather than just, you know, willy-nilly categorizing um, businesses based on government whim and what they, you know, a, a gut check about what they think is, uh, is dangerous or not. With, with this art gallery, you know, kind of we were joking with the Corderes that why would they classify this art gallery as, as dangerous enough to be in stage three? It's probably based on, you know, somebody's conception of a movie they once saw where they saw an art gallery opening with people crowded elbow to elbow, mm. drinking cocktails for, you know, with an ex exhibition going on. Um, that's just not right. Uh, and that's exactly why we brought that lawsuit because we think that when the when the government makes these types of distinctions, they should be able to justify them based on uh, rational reasons and, and you know, understandable criteria. And we're kind of seeing an absence of that right now in California. So a, a while back, I, I had a conversation with Steve and, and with Larry Salzman, or your, another, your colleagues. We, this was right, right at the start of the pandemic. And one of the issues that I think we were talking about, I, I think applies to the situation in Napa because it, it was remarkable that you mentioned Napa has really managed to hold down the number of infection. It's not a hot spot the way New York City is, for example. And I think one of the things we talked about previously, and I, I think I've, this has come up in uh, some of the challenges as well, is that these are just uniform blanket statewide restrictions. They're, they're not localized in a way that you would think, okay, if there's a, you know, an upsurge, say, in Santa Ana, California, okay, maybe businesses there or in this block would be quarantined for a set amount of time, but not all of Orange County, not all of California. And, and California is so variable in terms of which areas have, so you mentioned Napa, but I know, I think San Diego has done really well compared to LA, compared to um, Orange County. So, I mean, how do you think about, and I think the, part of the issue is that these lockdowns are analogized to quarantines from about 100 plus years ago. How do you think of that kind of issue? Yeah, I have a couple reactions. Um, one is the fact that counties are able to impose local restrictions that differ from state standards, but they're really only able to ratchet down. They can't ratchet up or they can only ratchet up to a certain point. No county can go into stage three. And so that's an interesting fact about that. Um, also, I think it's interesting that as much as a lot of people rally for sort of local control, because we generally think that's better because local governments in theory are more responsive um, to their constituents. In fact, we saw with Tesla, you know, there the county had maintained a stricter restriction than the state. And so Tesla brought suit asking, no, 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 we want the state standard. The state's great. Let the state standards reign. So it just kind of shows how arbitrary that is when people start arguing about whether we prefer local or state level control. I think it's to some extent that can be important, but a lot of times what we really care about is the outcome and the fairness and how much those orders actually respect in individual liberty. So, you know, with Tesla, they wanted statewide. Um, other places may think local control is better. Um, so that's, that's wanna, just some, yeah. I, I'm glad you brought up Tesla because I, I, I was interested in the sort of the standoff between Elon Musk and I think it was the county officials or whoever it was that would come and enforce this. So if, for people who don't remember or didn't see this, uh, he, I think he went on Twitter and said, we're going to reopen. And if anyone gets arrested, I want it to be me, not any of my, uh, my employees. 
And I have mixed feelings about Elon Musk, but I think on this particular issue, this seems like a, a, a courageous stand to, because I think it goes to the earlier issue of, you know, a, a car factory, you know, if they can, if they can keep their employees safe and, and kind of control the, the spread, why, why not? Why not let them open? Um, did you, yeah. So one of the things that struck me about the Tesla case was, I believe the county did back down in the end, right? Because he threatened to move out of state and kind of take all the money with him, which was several, you know, a significant amount of money. Um, yeah, certainly I, re I have to respect that. Just as, as I respect the Corderes, it was really courageous what they did to openly state their intention, you know, to engage in this act of civil disobedience and to say, we don't think this is right. We're going to open up if you fine us. We're going to take this all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary, but we can't just uh, surrender our rights. And so I think that is admirable, but it is also a, a sorry thing that Tesla can do that and get some sort of exemption because they have all this political clout. And meanwhile, you know, everybody else who's harmed um, doesn't have that same ability. But I wanted to point out something you asked earlier about historical quarantine orders. It, it really is interesting having studied up for the Cordaire's case on pretty much every quarantine order imposed in America throughout history. And the scope of these quarantine orders is unprecedented. It is really vast. Never before have entire states locked down the entire state without any regard to an individual's risk or whether they're infected or not, or what their intended behavior is, or if there's less restrictive alternatives. It's, it's really, um, it's shocking when you look at cases involving things like the bubonic plague and smallpox and, you know, huge threats throughout history. Never has the government responded this way. Um, and so that was one of the arguments we had planned, to, planned on making was that um, there has to be a better way of going about it rather than shutting down the entire state without regards to individualized circumstances. Uh, I want to leave some time for questions, but I, one other topic I wanted to raise with both of you has to do with something you, you mentioned earlier. So the rule of law implications for some of this. So, so what I'm seeing is uh, there's real questions about how some of these decisions are made. It seems arbitrary in, in some cases, like the example you gave uh, in California. And then there's a question of enforcement. And, you know, I've heard there are sheriffs in some places saying, we're not going to enforce the order if people open up and sort of creating a, a friction between different levels of government. And I read as well in, in Texas that uh, some counties, I believe, just dropping investigations of, of complaints for non-compliance because there's just too many and they can't, they don't want to try to enforce it. So what does it what does it mean when there are laws that aren't enforced or not or some parts of the government don't wish to enforce them? I mean, it seems like it's a recipe for chaos. Yeah, um, I mean, this is part of the problem with the lockdown orders. And to to echo some points that Anastasia made, I mean, the the I I, I mean, I'm against the entire lockdown from the from the just the basic principle that it's 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 opposed to the constitution, the rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And, and to pick up on a point that Anastasia made, it's unprecedented. I mean, the breadth of it is unprecedented. But the fact that um, the lockdown orders are not being handled like, I mean, what is, leave aside that quarantine and isolation and, you know, uh, cordoning um, a lot of the, the cases and the examples that we have are historical. They go back, you know, many decades, uh, sometimes centuries, to a time when medical science wasn't anywhere near what it is. That's a, that's a separate problem. 
But one of the things they got very right was that a quarantine, isolation, et cetera, they all are focused on infected individuals. So they're actually, they're actually focused on the people who, are, who could constitute a threat to some other person. In the same way that a criminal law is not like a blanket, uh, you know, um, uh, shutdown, or you don't tell people that they can't, a curfew or anything like that. You don't say, we're going we're gonna to shut the whole town down every night starting at 10 o'clock and everybody is treated like a criminal because that would effectively treat everybody like a criminal. And uh, what criminal law does is essentially says there are certain kinds of things you can't do. And if you do them, you're a criminal. Now, it's not quite, it's not perfectly analogous to a context of a pandemic. But what it's essentially saying is, if you are in fact a threat, we're going to apply these restrictions on you. That's a, an individualized, based and fact-based determination, which was one of the you know, cardinal aspects of the rule of law, that it actually has to apply to individuals based on either their behavior or their circumstances or something about them that actually makes them meet the standard of what, what lawful or unlawful behavior can be. These, this flips the entire thing on its head. And we're just issuing sweeping um, restrictions on people. You necessarily have to um, classify both people who are, or businesses who, who constitute some sort of a threat or some sort of a problem, or at least in principle, with those who don't. So it's inherently arbitrary. You end up necessarily with people like Elon Musk who have all kinds of political polar. He just has economic power in the sense that um, he can threaten to, to take his business elsewhere and they have to react. Whereas the Cordaires are a tiny little business. They have, you know, the rule of law uh, literally doesn't apply to them in the same way that it applies or the laws don't apply to them in this circumstance in the same way that it applies to Elon Musk. That is, you know, the literal, it's like the definition of violating the rule of law. Um, so when you approach things the way that our government has in these circumstances, even if there are some justifications for some kind of limited quarantine, they're still supposed to be evidence-based and circumstance-based. So basically what you're saying is, here's the principle, and now if you fit in that principle, the law will apply to you. Instead, it's just blanket, everybody gets treated the same way, whether they're a threat or not, which, I mean, you know, when you add to that the fact that um, local governments uh, in many cases are not enforcing these laws because the police just don't want to be in the position of putting, you know, innocent people in prison, you get real disrespect for the, for the rule of law. And that's one of the long-term consequences of this. I haven't followed this particular case, but, it, it, you know, one story I saw that there was a, I think a hairdresser in Dallas who was, uh, who decided to open or to, to, to practice their business. And they were, um, I think, arrested for this. Uh, and then there, so, and then there are people elsewhere in Texas who, who subject to complaints or just not getting any kind of response. So, I mean, my, one of my worries is that it, it deadens people to sort of respect for the law when the law is just so unevenly enforced. Well, why, why, why consider any, you know, I think there's a real place for respect for the law if it's rational, but if, if it's enforced this way, it kind of undermines civil society, uh, which, which is really worrisome. On, on issue of, um, of penalties, one of the things I noticed was, you know, I, I thought this was just reprehensibly sneaky is that one of the ways in which this is enforced is not that you're going to send the police to bar the door of your shop, but that they would withdraw your business license, which I, I guess this is uh, one of the things that the, the local authorities have the power to do. Um, so you, you work on economic liberty kinds of issues, Anastasia. Do you, are you seeing anything like this sort of becoming 
um, raising people's awareness of these sorts of rulings? Well, it is, uh, that brings to mind actually what happened to the Corderes and what happened with them is they threatened the Corderes um, and when they thought that that might not work, they went behind their back, contacted the landlord and said, we're going to bring civil penalties against you and maybe haul you off to jail and charge you with our attorney's fees and, and penalize you if you allow these, these tenants to keep flouting the law, even though he, he has no control over what they do. Um, so we do see these sneaky enforcement mechanisms going around that I think really strike people as an unjust. Um, and I wanted to bring something up while we're on it about the lack of enforcement or unequal enforcement. In Santa Clara County, they had recently put a ban on car parades. So because mass gatherings are prohibited, we're seeing a lot of people celebrate birthdays or graduations or uh, baby showers. I just attended one of these um, where you just drive by the house of your friend or neighbor, you know, in a little car parade to celebrate them because you cannot have your in-person gathering. And this has been, I think it's kind of a nice testament to human ingenuity and and our ability to find joy in, in dark times and in safe ways that these we've come up with this creative way to still um, get together safely when we're banned from having big gatherings. And Santa Clara said that they weren't going to allow that anymore. Um, I don't know why. There's absolutely no public health or safety threat. I assume they think that people are going to flout the law, that they're going to do a car parade and then end up getting out of their car. It's pretty bad. You just assume people are going to ignore the law rather than trusting them. Um, so in any event, uh, the police there said, we're not going to enforce this. In fact, the police had the week before engaged in a car parade to celebrate uh, the 100th birthday of the real Rosie the Riveter. So they were they were engaging the celebration as well. And they said, you want us to get out of our car and to go up to other people and have face-to-face -face interaction and expose ourselves um, to enforce this deeply unjust law where nobody's at risk. Um, so it's interesting we're seeing sort of uh, civil disobedience, not only on the part of private individuals, but also the, the enforcement workers themselves. So we have a few questions in the queue. Are you guys okay to stay on for a couple more minutes? Um, one more question from me. I don't know how much you have that you'd want to say on this, but one interesting thing that's going to, that I think is going to bubble up is as more businesses reopen, they're going to be, and it's not clear that even if they're allowed, a lot of businesses are comfortable reopening because their employees are concerned about, you know, am I going to be safe in the workplace? And then, you know, uh, what kind of liability are, 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 you know, employers or just places of business, shops, what kind of liability would they face? And how, how would you think about that kind of issue just in broad strokes from a pro-individual rights perspective? Um, the answer is potentially crushing liability. And there's already, uh, I'm pretty sure there's the, the sort of plaintiffs, PI attorneys are circling like sharks in a lot of ways and, and looking to bring um, class action cases against a lot of businesses, probably the big businesses. Um, so yeah, they, they, they face a lot of liability um, in large part due to the kind of perversion of tort law or personal injury law um, over, you know, this is also a 20th century phenomenon. But all of that said, I actually think two things are really, one is a lot of the issues that uh, the real sa safety kind of uh, problems and, and you know, I, nothing I, I don't want anything I say I'm against the lockdown or is that doesn't mean I don't think the disease is dangerous. I do. And I also think people should take all kinds of precautions. But one of the ways that happens in a free society is that businesses and individuals, for various reasons, they're going to, to try to make their 
their places of business as safe as they possibly can. The main reason is they want their customers to come frequent their businesses. And you can already see that happening all over the place. And people are smart as on a stage said, they're not idiots. They, you know, nobody wants to get this disease. So they do a protest, they do it in their car or whatever. Um, so they do sensible things. People can be trusted. That's what a free society is all about. But the backstop for that is liability. So if, if, um, if a business acts in a, you know, an unreasonable way that puts people at, at, you know, too much or too high of a risk and they actually cause damage to people that say they get the disease or, I mean, there's all kinds of examples of this um, uh, throughout our legal system and throughout society, then they can be sued and held liable for that. And that's one of the things that actually prompts businesses to act appropriately. Now, we have a very, as I said, screwed up tort system. Um, but one of the things I would, I think, I mean, I, I think, first of all, it makes sense for businesses to deal with their own liability issues. But I actually think uh, that one of the sensible things that governors and local governments could have done is essentially said, and this would have to be something that the legislature would have to do, and maybe some of them will do this going forward, because I think business liability is way too, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's way too serious a threat to businesses today. They can be liable for all kinds of things they shouldn't be. But one thing a legislature could do is say, look, if you follow these safety procedures, you know, whatever they may be, let's come up with rational safety procedures for different kinds of businesses. And they say, if you actually follow these procedures, you, I don't know, just say, throw, throwing things out, you have plastic dividers, you have social distancing, you tell people to wear masks, then we'll relieve you of certain kinds of liability as an incentive to, to doing that. And that's a, that's a way of government, it's not really, you know, think, you can think of it as an incentive, but it's, it's government, uh, performing its its standard setting or legal standard setting function. And I think that would be perfectly appropriate. It would solve two things. One is it would promote safety in the in the you know in the businesses and in the workplaces. But it would also provide uh, a way for getting people back out into society. It would it would it would make businesses much more secure in their ability to to actually deal with this disease. It would actually be rational because I think the tort system is uh, um, you know, imposes, has just ridiculous standards of liability that it imposes on businesses and individuals. Um, but that would be a nice uh, kind of, um, you know, appropriate way that the government could both promote safety and um, help people get back to work, so to speak, and come out of, you know, out of the shutdown order. So I'd love to see something like that happen. Yeah, in a way it brings to mind how unprepared our entire legal system was for this time of disaster. I mean, it's the courts are so deferential now to legislatures that it's almost impossible to, vin to vindicate your individual liberties when you're completely locked down like this. That seems wrong. Our, our, we should, our constitution should be stronger than that. We had no structure in a lot of states for uh, governor's power to impose lockdowns. In California, the, the scope of the governor's power right now is incredible. And uh, as Steve said, the tort system is just so badly that that businesses face all sorts of liability that they probably shouldn't. So I think after all this is said and done, it, there's really some time for reform for our legal system. I wanted to bring in a few questions from our viewers who are watching us on Zoom. Uh, I'll put these two questions together because I think they're related. So one is, uh, does the Wisconsin decision have broader implications for your work at Pacific Legal on separation of powers? Is this an important precedent? And then related to that, uh, are there any other wide challenges around the US of that kind of level? 
Um, the answer to the first question is yes and yes. Um, <laughs> in the sense that it's a really well done decision. And uh, I mean, one of the, the ways that we uh, try to vindicate or enforce, um, make real the separation of powers is by, I mean, essentially what we do um, at PLF is it's necessarily incremental. So it's, it's both us setting precedent on a case-by-case -case basis and us taking advantage of other precedents on a case-by-case -case basis. And part of what we do um, is to rely on the best decisions out there, whether they're controlling in a particular jurisdiction or not. You can, so, so with the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruling only applies within Wisconsin. It doesn't apply outside of Wisconsin. It doesn't apply to the federal system. But we can rely on the decision because it's very well reasoned because it invokes principles that go all the way back to the founding era, because it's still a modern decision in the sense that it is actually taking into consideration. It's not as though the court said, well, the administrative, you know, state or the bureaucracy is all illegitimate. Let's throw it in the garbage. They didn't do anything close to that. They said, okay, we have these rules. We have this uh, administrative state, but we still have to enforce constitutional principles. So it's a very well-reasoned decision. It's very helpful for us in the sense that it's a model for other courts. So we can go forward, whether it's in this context, in the lockdown uh, context, or whether it's outside of that context. And we can say, look at this really well-reasoned decision from Wisconsin. They're smart justices. They, they issued a very well-reasoned decision. Other courts should follow suit, whether it's at the federal level or at the state level. And one of the ways, and I'll just end with this, one of the ways that we convince or one tr tries to convince uh, any court, but especially the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, is to say, look, here's how a lot of states have done this. And they took certain steps that, uh, you know, it didn't be, if your concern is you want to, you know, you're worried that the entire administrative state is going to come crumbling down. Look what they did. They actually implemented rational rules that, in a sense, kind of strike a, a sensible balance between having an administrative state and also having freedom. It's not the balance I would strike, but if I have to make an argument to the Supreme Court, I want to give them examples of courts that have done a good thing and that, you know, all of the sort of parade of horribles that they're often talking about or our adversaries are, aren't happening. So we need a lot of model decisions like that. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a helpful decision. Uh, let me ask you another kind of question. Maybe we'll wrap up with this one. So you guys are involved in suing the government in different ways. Um, would uh, businesses like the Cordaires be in a position to sue the government for damages? Uh, I don't know this, if their circumstances would warrant this, but just generalize it to other businesses that have suffered under shutdowns. Um, would they be able to sue the government for that? What would they need to show? Uh, would they have to invalidate the shutdown? How would you think about that kind of issue? Anastasia, you want to take this one? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of thoughts. I mean, one is that damages are so hard to ascertain in this situation that I don't know that a court would feel comfortable actually, you know, saying how much money you've lost because it's hard to separate how much money is lost due to the shutdowns and how much money you would have lost anyway because people, frankly, just they wouldn't be and are not frequenting uh, retail businesses as much as they were before the outbreak of the coronavirus, which also just emphasizes that we probably don't need these lockdowns because people are making responsible choices. Um, but in any event, because it's really hard to, to determine what the actual number of damages is, that's one problem. Another problem is qualified immunity is so broad for government officials that um, it's hard to say that the, the government is, um, is, 
is going against any clearly established prohibition on government power. So I think uh, I think those are going to be pretty tough cases. Yeah, I'll just add to that uh, to pick up on that last point. It's really hard to sue the government for anything, but it's it's especially hard to sue the government for damages. And there's a whole doctrine of qualified immunity, as Anastasia pointed out, that that relates to a concept called sovereign immunity, which says that you can only ever sue the state if the if the state agrees to be sued. And I mean, there's, it's too detailed to get into. But bottom line is the courts have interpreted that so in such a way that it makes it almost impossible or really, really difficult to sue. And especially in a context like this, where you have, it's it's not easy to figure out whether, to what extent is the government responsible versus just the pandemic. There are certain ways, although I don't really think this is gonna happen, um, there are certain kinds of causes of action. And actually even in, in California, somewhat surprisingly, the Emergency Services Act that uh, empowers the government to issue emergency orders like this actually has a provision that says if the governor commandeers property um, that the, the state has to pay um, just compensation for it. It's like a takings clause kind of written into their statute. But that would require something like, we're gonna take over X hotel in order to turn it into a hospital. It's really difficult to say that, you know, what has happened amounts to a commandeering. So the, the bottom line is it's really, really hard. There are certain reforms that I think need to happen in order, should happen in order for people to be able to sue the government for damages. But in a context like this, it's, it's legitimately difficult. Like I, I, um, I would, if I were a court, I would be really reluctant just to decide, okay, you know, all of this is the cause of what the government did. Um, and the, the final point is um, there's at a certain point when even when the government is affecting all businesses sort of equally, everybody is sort of sharing in the pain trying to get compensation for the government really amounts to something more like a bailout than it is an individualized effort at compensation. And the legal standards are just the rational standards that could apply to that. They break down at a certain point. So, um, you know, if a court were to say, look, we're not going to do that, I actually think that there's a lot of legitimacy to that. So it's very difficult. Well, Steve, Anastasia, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been wonderful to learn from you and um, keep up the work. Uh, we need more people fighting for individual rights in this world. So I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, let me remind everybody that if you're watching us, uh, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. And we would appreciate it if you did that. And when you do, remember that you can click on this bell to get notifications whenever we go live so you can stay in touch with us. And also, if you're listening on our uh, podcast, you can subscribe and tell your friends, leave a review, uh, spread the word. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time on New Ideal Live. Thanks, Lon. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.